and the rest of my family, and that's you guys, that's the fans, my adopted family, especially my fans from San Diego. You know, it was 20 years, and, and we had a blast. I had a blast. I truly enjoyed it. But it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun if you hadn't been as supportive as you were. So I say thank you. Good morning and welcome to episode 472 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how are you? All right. I, um, I, I'm always interested in whether whether other sports broadcasters are are better or worse than baseball broadcasters mm. and i think baseball broadcasters have gotten better but um you know we still have in mind uh you know a lot of the ways in which they're they're quite poor and uh not all of them of course some of them are great some mm -hmm. of them i love but some of them aren't um and generally I, I it seems to me that football broadcasters are are worse uh with the exception of uh Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, Collinsworth, mm -hmm. uh, and that basketball broadcasters are generally better in my in my estimation. They seem to mm -hmm. be better. Uh, and so soccer today. Now I get to hear soccer, mm -hmm. and I didn't see the TV the TV broadcast. The TV broadcast that I was watching was in Spanish. I can't speak to them, but I did listen to some of the English on the radio. And there was one point where the guy who was doing the color commentary, who who had a uh, you know an accent, which well, that's it, right? So soccer has a reputation, I feel like, for having entertaining broadcasts, but I feel like seventy percent of it is the accents. Yeah, so I was at first charmed by this man's, uh, I believe, Irish Irish mm -hmm. accent. I I think, uh, but I, then I started to notice that uh, the accent uh, it was basically perfume on an unshowered. <laughs> Uh, on, on an unshowered body. Um, and it really peaked, I would say, when the U.S. was winning uh, one to nothing uh, in minute 81 or so, 80, 81. Mm -hmm. And uh, the broadcaster said in the most sort of profound, satisfied tone possible, like, like it was as though he were announcing, um, you know, the victory, uh, uh, you know, the, of, of U.S. forces in World War II or something. Mm -hmm. He says in this really profound way that the clock is the U.S.'s best friend right now mm. and it is Ghana's worst enemy. <laughs> and, I mean, the, that's true in every single game. Like, there's nothing <laughs> right. unique about the situation. Like, one team is trailing as the clock winds down. And, and so it, it, was, uh, it was a low point. Mm -hmm. uh, from that point on, he had completely lost me and I realized that uh, soccer radio announcers, at least, are quite poor. Mm. I don't think I'm qualified to judge the, the at least the level of analysis on a broadcast of any other sport. I guess I could I could probably detect a a cliche um, or detect detect filler that isn't actually insightful. But I I don't know that I would know what insight sounded like. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean that that would be. If you were learning things, that would be the answer to that, right? I mean, it's true. I would, I would have learned that there's a clock in soccer. Oh come on! <laughs> I knew that. I know sometimes there isn't a clock at the end, right? That makes a lot of people mad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. Um, it does seem to me, and I don't know. Maybe they do this. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this. But uh, so the, yeah, the game ends. Ninety minutes is up. 
uh, but then they they keep going for right. this unspecified injury time based on the referees uh, the referees clock I guess mm-hmm. the referees uh, timing of it and it, uh, it does seem interesting to me that they don't like the broadcast doesn't have a pretty pinpoint <laughs> estimate of what that time is going to be shouldn't be that hard you it, just it start a yeah. clock and stop a clock every time there's a stoppage for an injury yeah I guess I mean it I get maybe referees have their own. Maybe each individual ref has his own a sort of uh, internal clock, and uh, it's like a, an umpire strike zone. You know, you can't quite pin it down. Right. But I it, think it does. Is, yeah, that's what it is. I think, or it, that's what frustrates people. And yet, you'd think that, like, I, I don't know. Maybe they do this. Maybe, like, I I see one soccer game. You know, I see like four soccer games every four years, roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does seem see, like football, for instance, is they call it football. Uh, by the way, just so uh, you know, like mm-hmm. I said soccer just now, but <laughs> yeah. uh, I do know enough that they call it football. Um, uh, but it does seem like um, like there, like the broadcast should, should have their estimated time so that you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I did see Giancarlo Stanton hit the <laughs> the most interesting home run of the year. <laughs> Bringing it up before I could. That's I've never very seen wise. it. I don't think I don't think I've ever seen a home run like that. This is such I, a great home run. I think and that's the I, first time I've ever seen that home run. When I was talking about why I like Stanton home runs yesterday, I didn't mean this because this I wasn't even hoping for this. I I enjoy his mammoth home runs that go over everything and they keep going and going and you can't believe how far they went. This was the opposite of that. This barely cleared the the three thirty five sign at Marlins Park. But it, it's just, I mean, I'll link to it. I'll add a link in the Facebook group and on the blog post because if you haven't seen this home run, it, it seems to defy physics. <laughs> once, you've, once you've watched many thousands of baseball games, you can generally tell what, where the ball is going after it leaves the bat. You can tell from the trajectory, the angle, if it's going to be a home run. I mean, every now and then you'll get fooled. But... This one looked like a double down the line over the first baseman's head, and it left the ballpark. It was a home run, and it's just it looks like looks like a standard line drive, and evidently it was just hit so hard that it had no time to come down before before it went out. So I've been I've been refreshing Hit Tracker ever since this home run, waiting for them to to add some information about the trajectory of this thing so I could see whether it had one of the, the lowest uh, angle of, of departure or whatever. And still, the uh, it has not updated yet, but I will I will bring you that news tomorrow. But it must, right? It has to, right? It has to, because... Certainly, certainly going the other way. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, don't, I, I just have to imagine that there has never been a home run hit the other way in the home run tracker era, in the hit tracker era, uh, at a lower angle than this it's almost you said it's like an optical illusion when um because when he i see i when he hit it i thought line drive in front of uh in front of the right fielder mm-hmm. more than down the line um but there's a there's a there's sort of a second optical illusion when the ball is carrying um where it just it seems to it seems to be going down and then go back up. Like it almost feels <laughs> like it has started its decline and then you, and then it is once again rising as though it catches, uh, you know, like a flurry of wind or something, <laughs> and just starts going up again. 
Yeah. Well. It's a, I mean, the carry on this thing is incredible. The carry is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I can't figure out where it hit. I think it hits on the ledge of the, uh, of the, of the sort of cement stairway mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or railing or whatever. So I don't think it edges over like it to me. It looks like it's a good three. It, it's a good 10 feet over yeah on the fly and maybe have been a front row shot it it would have been a few rows back i guess it was well and that's over the that's over some sort of seating what is that yeah there are no no seats there really it's kind of a uh, it's like between the foul pole and the bleachers sort of it was a beautiful thing though this is i'm watching it over and over and over (laughs) and he was he was sort of laughing about it as he came down the line and Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah this is a special home run run. that's why he's a must-watch mlb tv player and uh another another callback to yesterday mike trout was two for two stolen base wise today yep uh so just padding that that leading stolen base rate Yep, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nine for nine this year. Also, As- yeah. Also, Bronson Arroyo's uh, no DL streak ended, which saddens me. This, the the Arroyo and Burley longest active streaks without going on the disabled list. In Arroyo's case, it was like without missing a start, I think. Uh, those were two of my favorite streaks in baseball. Not that, hmm. not that either of them has been ever really elite, um, save for Burley right now, which I don't think that's going to last really. But just the, just that they have managed to do this while all the other pitchers drop like flies around them is one of my favorite baseball feats. So glad it lasted that long. Trout has only attempted nine stolen bases in his last eighty-five games. Hmm. That's kind of sad. Have we? Uh, do you think that? Uh, we've we've lost this forever, or do you think this is just about batting in front of? Well, I guess I, w- I was going to say batting in front of Pujols, but he wasn't there last September, and Trout didn't really attempt any steals last September either. Yeah, well, this is usually the trajectory, right? I feel like with with I mean, I know, but he's twenty two, right? Uh, yeah, but well, he's hitting for more power, I suppose, or at least he he's got sixteen homers. He finished with. Or no, I'm looking at Pujols' page. Um, yeah, I don't know. He, I guess he's he's hitting for a little more power, right? Is that right? And often it seems like guys will start running a little less. I don't I don't know whether. I mean, it, often it's because their build changes or they slow down. I don't know whether that's happened to Trout yet, not perceptibly. Yeah, I mean, he's still faster than than most. He's mm-hmm. he might not be the fastest home to first time in in the league from the right side anymore mm-hmm. but you know he's still he's fast enough to be the fastest guy on, on any team mm-hmm. basically um anyway it's uh it's a shame because that's part of what makes him interesting mm-hmm. um all right so uh sad thing let's go to the sad thing there's no yeah. segue to the sad thing it's just sad mm-hmm. um so tony Gwynn died mm-hmm. um tony Gwynn, of course it's uh i mean you know it's sad because of how young he was. It's also sort of shocking because of how you kind of realize how old he is. Mm-hmm. Um, that generation that he played in feels uh, recent. It's a part of most of our, you know, many many of our youths. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us can remember Tony Gwynn when he was still young Tony Gwynn, uh, stolen base Tony Gwynn. Uh, and um, I don't know, there's just something about the fact that players from that generation are dying now. Mm. And not not quite of natural causes, 
but also not uh, not quite. I mean, these aren't car accident deaths. Uh, mm-hmm. He and Bob Welch uh, mm-hmm. within you know a week of each other. Uh, two you know fairly iconic players of a fairly recent generation, um, and uh, it's awful. It's sad. It's uh, it's too bad, uh, and you know it's hard to process it because. The relationship we have with these guys is very weird, um, and uh, you don't want to make it about you, certainly, because it's not about you. It's about mm-hmm. a, a man and a father and a person that everybody loved uh, who died, but also you spend decades of your life processing what this guy does and uh, reacting to it and having emotions about it, and so uh, it's weird when all of a sudden it becomes something very real. Um, what do you remember about Tony Gwynn? Uh, well, I was talking to Jonah Carey about him earlier today on his podcast, and I was saying that I was sorry that I hadn't gotten to see Prime Gwynn, because by the time I started following baseball closely, he was in his mid-30s. But at the same time, he was, in a sense, still sort of Prime Gwynn at that point. Like, he never he never really had the sad decline phase. He He stopped running, he gained weight, he got hurt more often, but... Batting average-wise, which was always his calling card, uh, he was really at you know at at age forty, at age forty-one when he was in the lineup, he was almost exactly as productive as he'd ever been. Like in his last in his last year, seventy-one games, one hundred and twelve plate appearances. He did a lot of pinch hitting. He had a one twenty-seven OPS that year, and his career OPS was one thirty-two. He was yeah. you know still. Still a really fun and interesting player to watch, and I I got to see him that season in San Diego. I just happened to be visiting that September uh, just as he was wrapping up his career, and he didn't start that day, but he made a pinch hit appearance late in the game. He struck out, which was weird because <laughs> it was Tony Gwynn, but he still got a standing ovation, and everyone was super excited to see him do anything at that point because he was... Immensely popular, of course, not just in San Diego, but everywhere, but but especially in San Diego. And so, he's a he's a really interesting player. I like I like unique players who do things that we don't see often. And he is very much that kind of player. He just uh, he didn't strike out. If you look at his, I mean, his career strikeout rate is something like four point two percent. I think I looked it up earlier today. And there's really, I mean, it's it's clearly the best of anyone who debuted after the 50s even um billy buckner bill buckner was was close but uh that and just and the average and batting average is something that that the sabermetric community kind of poo-poos and we point out the shortcomings of the stat and why it doesn't capture everything a player does but and in his case he was you know mostly a, a batting average driven player he didn't have incredible patience. He didn't hit for a ton of power most of the time. Um, he was mostly batting average, but his batting average was so fantastic that that didn't matter at all. That wasn't really a shortcoming because when you are like a 340 true talent hitter, which is insane, uh, then you can have a 390 on base percentage, as he did, without walking an extraordinary amount, without doing a whole lot of other stuff. And... He had, I, I compared him to, to Mariano Rivera in his consistency in a, in a stat, in a category that we tend to think of as something that fluctuates a lot from season to season. Like with Rivera, it was kind of amazing that he never 
never had just a year when his ERA was just fluky and he had a really crazy BABIP. I mean, there was one year, I guess, when he had an ERA in the threes, but that was as bad as it ever gotten. We always say relievers, oh, you know, can't depend on them. One year they're great, one year they're not. Uh, small samples and they could get some bad bounces, but Rivera never really had a bad year. Gwynn never really had a low average year. He hit 300 every single year, except for his partial rookie season when he came close. And it's kind of amazing that he he just never had a year, even when just, you know, bounces didn't go his way and maybe he was banged up and he hit 290 that year. That never happened. So in, in batting average, which, as we always say, it fluctuates a lot from year to year. The leaders in one year are often not the leaders the next year. He was always, just always up there. Yeah, Jason Starks uh, had a column about Gwyn, uh, and the the best fact in it, my favorite fact in it, was that he, uh, in a 14-year stretch, he finished in the top five in the batting race 13 times, and he <laughs> the, for the 14th time, he missed by one hit. And it's true, but it's it's not, I, I feel like it's not quite as fluky with, with Gwyn, because uh, or I, I guess batting average was never quite so prone to flukes with Gwyn because Gwyn is we when we think of guys who are good, uh, you know, batting average hitters these days, they tend to be guys who um, uh, are good, you know, good BABIP guys. Mm-hmm. And um, Gwyn was never. I mean, Gwyn was a good BABIP guy, but he wasn't like extremely good. Like, there's a number of modern players who are ahead of him and and even comfortably ahead of him. And you know, some guys with with, uh, you know, like Joey Votto is comfortably ahead of him as a BABIP guy, and mm-hmm. uh, Matt Kemp is ahead of him, and of course Trout's well ahead of him, and Starling Marte's ahead of him. There's a there's a number of guys who, and maybe those guys will come down to earth, but it's not like Gwyn was BABIPing three, 380 every year. Um, I mean, as as well as he could place the ball, as sort of unnaturally as he could he could place the ball, it seemed wherever he wanted to, He it, it was much more... Uh, that he never struck out, and yeah. mm-hmm. it's in a sense he's that last. He's the last player before baseball went to the you know to the strikeout. And mm. there's I don't there's no hitter really since then whose batting average could be so stable and so high. Yeah, because right. the more balls you put in play, the less subject you are to those fluctuations in the in the results of the batted balls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he he just never. So, um, so I have a few. Uh, I have a few favorite Quinn facts, but because um, there's so many, I feel like he he might be one of the most fun factable players ever. I heard so many today, and I wasn't even really looking for them. Well, great. Now I'm going to disappoint you probably because <laughs> you've heard so many, and and I'm 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 these are uh, you know th- these are by no means inclusive. I'm sure everybody heard great fun facts about him that you will not hear here. Sorry, there's other ones. <laughs> you can you can open almost any page of the internet and and see them. Um, but as to the strikeouts, um, so Tony Gwynn after after Tony Gwynn got to an 0-2 count in his career, he struck out 13.6 percent of the time. Um, so like, you know, one in seven or one in eight at bats, uh, 82% of active hitters have a higher strikeout rate overall than that. So if you put Tony Gwynn in an O2 count, he would still be, you know, in the 82, 82nd percentile for making contact for modern hitters. I mean, he's just, he was outlandish for his era. Andrew Koo, um, uh, 
basically created like a strikeout rate plus uh, mm-hmm. comparing his strikeout rate to the the league average when he was playing. Mm-hmm. And his his basically he struck out sixteen percent as much as the league average, I think. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I I think I'm doing the plus math correct. Uh, it doesn't really matter because you know it's fantastic. Even if I just made up a number, <laughs> the, you know it was fantastic. That's the point. It was a number worth quoting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so the strikeouts are are a big part of it, and uh, you know a lot of the stats have to do with strikeouts because that was incredible that he didn't strike out. Um, Another thing that I think is incredible about him is that he has the 12th most intentional walks of all time. Hmm. Um, he has more than Mike Schmidt, more than Todd Helton, more than Willie Mays, more than Chipper Jones, more than David Ortiz, more than almost everybody because only 11 people have more intentional walks than him. And, and you know, he just was not a power guy. He was a singles guy for the most part. I mean, he did hit some home runs. He did hit some doubles, a lot of doubles. But, you know, he basically you walked him because... He was so certain to get a single that you just couldn't risk it when a guy was in scoring position. So about half of them came basically in the same class of situation. Two outs, a runner in scoring position, nobody on first. Just, you know, forget it. We're not going to go after Gwynn. And so 200 and some intentional walks, I forget how many exactly. Um, He drew a a bit more than one and a half intentional walks per home run hit. and that's a very rare thing. Very, very rare to have more home, more intentional walks than home runs, period, mm-hmm. unless you're a number eight hitter um, and you're getting fake intentional walks, cheap intentional walks. Uh, so um, 1.5 intentional walks per home run. There are 19 guys who have done it. Almost all of them are, are were basically number eight hitters or they did the bulk of this walking while they were batting eight. So there's really only four. Gwynn, Carew, Boggs, Ichiro, those four guys all are th- – that's the, that's the Mount Rushmore of batting mm-hmm. average, right? I mean, those mm-hmm. four guys are all so special and they're all special in their own way. I like that they are um that they all have different styles and that they all had different secondary skills and they all had different things that made them great batting average hitters. Um uh, but Gwyn's intentional walks uh was the highest of any of them. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah, so basically like an intentional walk freak show. I like that about him. Mm-hmm. Um I love I love that he hit 462 in double A. And <laughs> It wasn't look. It wasn't a full season or anything like that. It was like a hundred plate appearances or, or so. But a four sixty two is like <laughs> such a big number. Like we talk about hitting four hundred, but four sixty two <laughs> is like four hundred with so with like four and a half games to spare. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, and that was his first professional ben, season. That's what I was gonna say. Oh, okay. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yes, uh, you're right. You anticipated wonderfully. Yeah. So he was 21. He was young for his level. But yeah, that was the summer that he was drafted. And I mean, it's one thing. Like Howie Kendrick was a late round. I, I'm probably gonna butcher Howie Kendrick's trajectory actually. But Howie Kendrick was like a late round pick, and and then also did incredible minor league things, and and sort of uh, became a, an awesome prospect. But it's not like Howie Tenth Kendrick. Round. Tenth round. Are you saying that's not late? No, I'm confirming that it was late. Oh, Later okay. than Gwyn. All right. But, okay, so but the, the point is that uh, Howie Kendrick's first exposure to pro ball, it was like nothing special. It's not like immediately you realized, like, huge mistake had been made. Now, mm-hmm. pretty soon after that, like when he went to short season ball the next year, uh, the next summer, he was uh, phenomenal, and the news phenomenal. But um, mm-hmm. but Tony Gwynn, I mean, like three weeks after he got drafted in the third round, he was already 
like just completely you couldn't get him out. And it, I wonder, I didn't see anybody write about this, but you do wonder how did he, I guess you wonder how he slipped to the third round. On the other hand, you think about him, you think about what he did. He had a terrible arm. He was, you know, even then, even then, you know, there's a lot of talk about how he got fat. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was reading stories from 1984 when he was talking about, which was, I think, his like second or third year, when he was talking about how his weight was an issue and he was very uh, self-conscious about his weight and he was very proud that he had come into camp weighing less than he ever had, but it was still pretty fat. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so you can imagine, you know, basically, uh, you know, fattish guy mm-hmm. who uh, didn't have much of an arm. Um, so I guess that's wh- that's how you, that's what you would say. But on the other hand, he was incredibly athletic. He was incredibly fast. He was a multi-sport star. He got drafted into the NBA. He was, or maybe the ABA. I don't know. He got drafted in the NBA at, even though he was five eleven and fat. Um, so large, I guess you'd say. Um, so I'm not sure why he got drafted in the third round, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, you'd have to imagine that. If not quite the same level of immediate mistakery that like Mike Trout, uh, uh, disp- uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't know how you, I don't know the verb that goes with mistakery. Like once you say mistakery in the sentence, all bets are off. And so still waiting for the adjectival form of parody from the parody, other day. Yeah, someone uh, suggested on par. Uh uh-huh. yeah. Anyway, uh, so instant mistake um, on that and. 462 geez so speaking of 400 uh there's an article i think maybe it was like the first big i think maybe it was the first big sports illustrated article about him it might not have been but it was around 84 um and in it he talks about how he had a slow start that april and uh, in fact i can check to see if it was 1984 because i'll see if he had a slow start that april uh but he talked about uh, you know he was lunging at pitches and it took him a while to get his groove and he said well he hit 434 that april maybe it was may yeah, he hit 261 in May, so it could have been that. Um, but he talks about how he doesn't get too stressed if he has a bad month early in the year because he knows he's never going to hit 400. There's no way he could ever hit 400 over a season. It's impossible. So he might as well just get it out of the way by having a bad month. And so then, of course, 10 years later, he hit 394 when the when the season ended. And I think it's – I mean, the best bet is that he wouldn't have he wouldn't have hit 400, right? I mean, he needed to – well, need to hit. Uh, if you, I, I guess, I guess not. But if you, if you don't go with the arbitrary endpoints of seasons, if you just look for uh, periods of season length from that era, there are there are periods of longer than 162 games where he did hit over 400. I read, I read some stat. I think, uh, I think it was like 179 games he hit. 407 or something like mm-hmm. right right in that 93 94 time frame so um so i mean yeah looked at that way i guess it's quite possible that he would have but well yeah well i uh i don't know that that's logical what you just did <laughs> but uh i mean no what you're saying is that he answered he he answered the question he was capable of hitting yes, 400 over right, a season right. He yes, did it he, over the course of a season. It just probably wasn't. wouldn't have continued to do it that season. But yes. and, yeah, uh, he probably wouldn't have continued to do it that season. However, I'm not 100 percent sure that you that that it's as as uh, un, unlikely as as my initial thinking. He um, he was hitting 475 in August 
of that month when it ended, not quite halfway through August. And we don't know whether that was real hotness or whether that was the illusion of hotness. But, I mean, he was hitting 475 in August, so it was going up. And uh, he had he hit over 400 in 12 months of his career. Uh, so basically about one in like seven or eight months, he hit over 400. So if you basically figure he needed to do that for one and a half more months, um, yeah, I don't know, one in, what do you think, one in 30? Fair, fair odds? Better, worse? Mm-hmm. I'd say better. You think better? You think it's yeah. better than one in 30 that he would have hit, uh, you know, basically 415 over the final month and a half of a season. The thing is that, I don't know if this is true for all Septembers, but the his worst month for hitting 400 was September. He only did it mm-hmm. He only did it once. He hit two, 400 in at least two of every other month, but o- only one in September, and it was like 401 or something like that. And Gwyn, I remember Gwyn always being, when I think of Gwyn's injury problems, it seems like it was always that he was missing in September. Maybe that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could imagine a narrative where he was he wore down in yeah. September's lifetime three thirty three hitter in September, which was his eh, tied with May ahead of July, mm-hmm. okay. behind the other months. Uh, Grant Brisby wrote about how clutch he was, um, mm-hmm. and I I I don't know. Yeah, he was. He he hit super super well with runners on base. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, the 444 with the bases loaded yeah. <laughs> was pretty spectacular. Yeah, and yet, great. and yet, and yet, I want to make more of that than just saying it. But then I looked at the best batting averages ever with the bases loaded mm-hmm. and all time. And this is the top 10. Number one, Sotaguchi. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is a pretty high value guy. Filtered like 60 or something plate appearances, and Gwyn mm. had like 140. So it's not yeah. like. 158. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Number one, Sotaguchi. Number two, Pat Tabler. Yes, number, right. <laughs> number three, Russ Snyder. Number four, Felix Jose. Number five, <laughs> Jeff Keppinger. Number six, Jim Holt. Number seven, Gwen. Eight, Rich Rollins. Nine, Biff Pokoroba. And ten, Ian Desmond. Wait, so while it is distinguished list. Well, it is fun that he at 444 with the bases loaded. I'm going to just move on from that. <laughs> and then the last thing, I think the one that everybody saw most cited was some ver- some variation on his um, success against Greg Maddox, mm-hmm. as well as other great pitchers, but especially Greg Maddox. And I was going to ask you, Ben, would would Gwen, if Gwen were playing right now, would he be one of your three MLB TV guys? Uh, hmm. Prime Gwyn right now? Uh, probably not. I don't know. He'd be, he'd be up there. But I don't know. I mean, it was, <laughs> how exciting is it to see single after single after single? Maybe. Yeah. Right. If he's not chasing something, if he's not chasing 400 or if it were like with Ichiro right. and he was chasing, you know, George Sisler's hits record or something, then, then yeah, it's, uh, it's not all that exciting. And, and I, I don't know. I don't. I. I probably wouldn't have him as one of my top MLB TV guys either. But looking at the career in retrospect, I, I think that there, there are. I feel like of that generation, there's nobody that I want to go back and watch more, and yeah. particularly him against Maddox. <laughs> um, but you know him in all sorts of situations. But the thing is, when you're watching it, it's hard to distinguish between you know fluke statistical fluke and something worth studying. 
And now that it's over, you know, that now that his career is over, now that that era is over, you do like it would be fun to go back and try to figure out whether he was clutch with runners on base, whether what he did differently, why he was so tough, what it was like to try to get him out with runners on base, what he became as a hitter. And same thing with Maddox. You wouldn't, you know, if 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 some hitter and some pitcher had, you know, an interesting pitching line, uh, you know, a matchup line against each other right now. We we would brush it off. We go ah whatever man matchup lines don't mean anything, but uh, you know after a career is over, um, and it's all just sort of permanent and and you you know it's not going to be undone by the next ten plate appearances regressing to the mean or whatever. You do kind of want to study it and I and you know Maddox is we knew Maddox was something special when we were watching him and I think that we we've, we've only come to appreciate it more. We knew Quinn was something special when we were watching him and we've only come to appreciate it more. Um, and I think that to watch those 106 plate appearances uh, would be just about the best use of two days of, <laughs> of my life that mm-hmm. I could imagine. I, I, I want nothing more than those 106 plate appearances, every single pitch. Um, uh, now, I will, I will note this, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, one small thing about this. Um, Gwyn against Maddox through 1991, uh, 41 plate appearances. Win hit 559, 615, 647. Uh-huh. Maddox was, those plate appearances include years where Maddox was not very good. Yeah. And they include years where he was extremely good. Uh, 91 was uh, his first Cy Young, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, but not quite, he, he didn't really become Maddox until, in, in my opinion, uh, until uh, he went to Atlanta and in particular like the 94, 95 seasons and, and you know, the years around it. Um, so, he did do a lot of his damage when he was probably smarter and better and able to execute his his art and science better than Maddox was able to execute his. Um, from 92 on, after Maddox got peak, Gwynn still hit 333, and he still had a 394 on base percentage, and he still never struck out. So it's not as though... <laughs> and the average though, hitter against Maddox in those years... Dropped to nothing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's he still was decisive. Um, in those plate appearances, I mean, he basically kept his career line against Greg Maddox, even mm-hmm. even in the half that I'm arbitrarily uh, cutting, uh, you know, cutting off to make look worse. Um, so I don't even know what my point is. Was this supposed to be something against Tony Gwynn? Because I <laughs> sounded failed like it was going to be at the beginning. <laughs> no, yeah. He was still really awesome. That's I guess <laughs> that's the point. Is even 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 the second stage when okay here it is even the second stage when Maddox uh, adjusted and was at the peak of his game and arguably nobody's ever been better and smarter even then Gwyn was still putting up numbers mm-hmm. so um, one last thing um, about this I was talking to uh, to a trainer a, a, a major league baseball team team trainer today and uh, chewing tobacco came up mm-hmm. and um, uh, he mentioned that that chewing tobacco use is actually as far as he can tell, is going up, uh, has gone up a lot in the last couple of years. And we don't see it as much because Major League Baseball has uh, discouraged the display of it and made mm-hmm. it uh, you know, harder for players to show that they're chewing tobacco. Mm-hmm. And it, so it almost feels like it's not really that much of a part of the game anymore. But it is, um, and this trainer estimated that half of players are chewing tobacco uh, regularly. And uh, I don't know what it is about baseball that makes us want to be sort of paternalistic and tell guys, hey, stop doing that and create rules to take care of them. They're, you know, grown-ups and they can they can do what they want, but it it does feel like uh it does feel weird that we have a sport where 
half of grownups are uh, doing something that almost nobody else does in public. Um, and the, 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 the trainer's hypothesis was that um, now that now that players don't have access to, you know, to various pills and amphetamines and things to to give them energy that uh, they a lot of them have turned to nicotine for that reason and yeah you could imagine a point of view that says that um that the nicotine is worse than whatever it was they were consuming before mm-hmm. um i don't know if i know enough to argue one way or the other but it's interesting nonetheless i wonder because you'd think now that it's been banned in the ncaa and in the minors you'd think that guys wouldn't get in the habit of doing it and by the time they got to the majors they they wouldn't do it they'd be conditioned not to i wonder whether now chewing has like a a big league aura to it where now i'm a big leaguer i can do this and this is how i'm gonna prove that i belong in the big leagues is now i'm gonna start chewing which i hadn't done before i don't know maybe maybe it's more the the physiological than the psychological but um i don't know maybe this will dissuade from some people from doing it but uh I looked up one thing while you were talking. You're wondering why he was not drafted earlier than the third round. So I looked in the the Diamond Mines scouting database, and there are several reports on Gwyn, but most of them from after the draft. There's one report from immediately before the draft, like the, the beginning of June 1981, the year he was drafted, which was filed by Gordon Lakey, who was an Astros scout at the time. Um, I'm going to send this to you in case that there, there are parts that I can't read because it's a little little blurry. Um, but there is some interesting stuff on here. So the, uh, the, conclu- the ultimate conclusion, well, I won't start there. I'll start with um, his present hit tool was a four and his future hit tool was a five. And this mm. was, as you said, the guy who was hitting 462 in double A a few months later. Um, his uh, his abilities, very good fastball hitter with excellent bat speed, slight uppercut swing with good extension, will have average power when he learns to pull the ball more, gets good jump in outfield and has improved there as the season progressed. The weaknesses doesn't throw well, as you said, gets no leverage and doesn't have good mechanics. Opens too soon and is stiff. Labors to run and wobbles some. (laughs) (laughs) That's a that is a great verb for a scouting report. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, has slight timing hitch that causes him to inside out a lot of pitches, and has some problems adjusting to off speed and breaking pitches. Extremely aggressive at the plate. And then the summation is aggressive free swinger with good bat speed and power potential. Restricted to infield, uh, could right? be could be left field. Uh, maybe looks, maybe hard to say. It does look like infield. it looks like infield, but I don't know if that makes sense. And must hit to play, but is desirable. Could be a good hitter someday, <laughs> which is a, a good way to end yeah. that scouting report. Awesome. Um, but yeah, the overall future potential fifty three point five, which would which would You'd think make him higher than a third round pick. I, I don't know if they thought that he had a good chance of reaching that potential. Um, that's like a it's like a starter on a decent team, but uh, yeah, I don't know, not one of the not one of those scouting reports that will live in 
in the pantheon of great great scouting jobs with the future five hit tool on Tony Gwynn. Same uh, same zip code as me. I wonder. Oh, interesting. Uh, they've blocked out the address. I wonder if I can find Tony Gwynn's childhood home. Hmm. Uh, five eleven one eighty. Did you say that? I didn't say that. No. Uh-huh. Strong, compact, well proportioned frame. Very mature physical features. Finished scholastic eligibility, but has one more year of baseball left. Was guard on basketball team and got a late start this spring. Uh, cool. What do you think this is? Uh, on the one word descriptions on the right hand side, about middle way down, it says somewhere he's written the word excellent after yeah, looks like physical what what do you think uh, that is what i could think they... it's i think it's is it physical maturity oh could be physical think, maturity. oh because emotional maturity is right below yeah it. right yeah yeah definitely hmm. all right cool good cool. stuff all right uh so that is it for today uh please support our sponsor baseball reference go to baseballreference.com Subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Please send us some emails for tomorrow's email show. Got to say the emails last couple of weeks, not not up to your usual lofty standards. So I'd like to see like to see some good emails come in between now and 24 hours from now. And we will answer some of them on another show tomorrow.